0: Welcome to the Get Over Yourself Podcast. This is Brad Kearns.
1: The reason why we end up suffering is because we think we shouldn't suffer. And in fact, when we complain about not having things, complaining is a form of comparing ourselves to a situation we thought we should have had. People are at their peak performances when they don't think about it when they're in the zone and they just love what they're doing.
0: Here's a quick thank you to our sponsors. They make this show possible and the tremendous production behind it online and in audio. Thank you, WildIdeaBuffalo.com grass-fed, locally-raised, on the Great Plains for the last 130,000 years. Quit eating that junk food feedlot cattle and get some quality meat into your life. And thank you, dnafit.com, cutting-edge genetic testing, delivering customized diet and exercise recommendations for your peak performance. Use the discount code G-O-Y-30. Get over yourself. Integro Probiotics make this fabulous liquid probiotic high potency. It's called Flourish, so your microbiome can flourish. Gut health is everything. Get started. Visit entegrohealth.com and Tribali Foods. Pre-made, creatively flavored hamburger and chicken patties. When you're in a rush, drop one down, fry it up. It's delicious. T-R-I-B-A-L-I and Almost Heaven, that's the name of my sauna. These are beautiful home-use saunas made of real wood, shipped to your door, easy to assemble, and then you are rocking. That's right, I'm going from chest freezer cold therapy into the hot barrel sauna. Check them out at almostheaven.com. And the Primal Blueprint online multimedia educational courses to go primal, go keto, get a stand-up desk going master the challenge of endurance training. Go to bradkearns.com and click on the links to learn more about these courses. If you're sick of my voice on the podcast, you can now get sick of my face too on the videos. And ancestral supplements. This is grass-fed liver, organ meats, and bone marrow delivered in a convenient gelatin capsule. Don't stress about cooking liver anymore. Just pop some pills or throw capsules into a smoothie every day like me. And now on to our show. Hi, listeners. I'm excited to bring you this deep discussion and fast-moving discussion. This is definitely not a 1.5-speed podcast. We are going to go deep with Dave Rossi of Dave Rossi Global Leadership Training. He's got this wonderful kind of a new operation for him. He's not one of these seasoned slick guys that have been doing leadership training and doing their DVDs and CDs for 20 years and spouting their talking points. He's very real and authentic, uh, just getting going with his career change. But the guy has a gift for this stuff. Um, it just comes out as soon as you meet him and engage with him. And I had the privilege of uh, participating in a leadership retreat that he conducted uh, over in the Santa Cruz mountains of the San Francisco Bay area. Recently I talked about diet and fitness and he was uh, doing the leadership training with some other presenters and presenting this beautiful uh, weekend experience where we integrated yoga into the classroom, lecturing and discussion. And some of the stuff he said just stuck with me. And I started thinking about it day after day after day after I left the weekend retreat. And I thought it was really powerful and profound. And that's why I wanted to get him on the podcast and talk about some of these basic concepts that he presented that I have shared with so many people since that day. Um, just really quickly, because we're going to talk about it in the show too, but when you experience fear and anxiety, which we do constantly in daily life because of the way that daily life is structured and the social media experience making us feel inferior and not enough and that we need to step it up because we're looking at the person toasting us from the camera on the beach in Hawaii, wish you were here, sorry you're not, that kind of thing. When you experience fear and anxiety in your life, You can acknowledge it and then redirect your focus, redirect your thoughts back to your values and your vision. So we're going to get deeper into that. I'm going to ask him more of what he means by that. But this guy can take a concept like that and go off and spout these beautiful quotes from Henry Ford and the the knowledge base that he has and the effortlessness in which he can process people. And he did a great job processing me at the leadership retreat and a little bit on uh, on the show where I played devil's advocate and said, wait a second, what if fears are things that motivate you to perform well in your job and meet your sales quota every quarter? So I I think you're going to get some great value out of this slow down and listen carefully to dave rossi it's wonderful stuff something that we can all benefit from thank you very much enjoy dave rossi global here in our <laughs> global headquarters of the fabulous health club here in the silicon valley and uh, this seems like your hangout. You have some classes here, you're doing your thing. And I wanted to catch up with you. We had an incredible leadership retreat that you organized and presented at over at the uh, the 1440 Multiversity. So if you Google this incredible facility in the Santa Cruz Mountains, but uh, our mutual friend Angelique had me out there. I was gonna talk about diet and do this leadership thing. What's this all about? And you know, I got drawn in. It was It was captivating, the message that you had on this subject. And these things, this was, I don't know, a couple months ago. And I keep coming up and thinking of these insights that you provided to the group. So I thought we should dig into some of this stuff.
1: And welcome to the show, man. Thanks for thanks for coming. Brad, thanks for having me. I think the first thing that comes to mind is what's going on with you that these things keep on looping into your mind. Whether you loved it or you're lacking something, what's what's the the root of that? That would be my first thought. Yeah, the big
0: one that I've shared with so many people uh, is when you experience fear and anxiety, which is basically our day-to-day existence with Whatever's going on, whatever's bugging you, whatever's on your mind it's you know fear and anxiety come up over and over about what's going to happen in the future, right and so whenever you get into that state, I think the training at the leadership retreat was you first acknowledge it mm-hmm. and then you you know you control your thoughts because we have control over our thoughts and and you redirect toward your vision and your purpose is that
1: did I, did, I, well, did I pick I, up that okay you did I think you know um you got the abridged version, I guess, kind of at our, at our retreat because it was a pretty fast-paced retreat and it was on leadership and a bunch of other stuff. But, you know, one thing that all leaders do, and I consider athletes and people who, who have peak performance, whether it's music or art or whatever, um, you know, they have fear and they also love what they're doing. Um, and that's leadership. Leadership is controlling fear. Leadership is exceeding and excelling at a high performance rate or a high peak peak rate. Um, The thing with fear is that our brains have this tremendous mechanism in our head for fear. So if you consider your brain a computer, right? So how many hundreds of thousands of years have humans evolved? And our fear mechanism was really used for running away from giant animals, animals with big teeth, um, with foods to eat or foods not to eat. And so our fear mechanism was really created and needed for our survival. But now what is this giant fear mechanism used for? Hey, this guy cut me off. Hey, I want to become first place with this next race. Hey, why did this person call me a name? So this fear mechanism gets triggered with kind of trifle things, but yet it's real. We still feel the emotion and we still react to it. So you got the short version, which is, yes, you have to acknowledge it. Okay, I'm feeling fear. What is fear? It's fear of something that hasn't happened yet. Mm -hmm. What is anxiety? The fear of a possible future that hasn't happened yet. So we end up making um, decisions in our life, We end up acting in real time at the moment and making decisions based on a possible future. It doesn't mean you don't acknowledge the fear. It means that you say, okay, so I'm feeling this emotion of fear. I need to process this. What is it? Where is it coming from? And what do I want to do with it? If there is a fear of the future, like, hey, this is a tough course. I may not do so well. I'm feeling feeling some fear with this. Okay, let's get rid of the emotion And let's focus on the types of things we can do to solve the problem. Well, maybe I need to wear a different pair of shoes. Maybe I need to study the course more. Maybe I need to change my strategy, whatever it is. You have to acknowledge it. You have to process it. And then you need to decide what to do.
0: So the fear is uh, getting you into this fight or flight state. We're chronically overstimulating the fight or flight state, which was designed and is hardwired in our genetics to save our lives in that short duration uh, episode of the... the you know, the common example of running from the big cat, mm-hmm. or even if it's, uh, you know, a week long rainstorm when we're, you know, fighting for our lives and trying to survive and moving at a, uh, moving 20 miles a day to, to get away from, from trouble in that, in that primal example. And today it's like every day we wake up and we get to trigger fear and anxiety and the stress hormones. And so we're in this kind of, I guess, uh, disturbed emotional state where our higher thinking and reasoning is suppressed and we, we're not being rational we're just being emotional and reactive
1: uh, exactly um so fear is a form of suffering <laughs> okay stress is a form of fear stress is oh i can't finish this at the allotted time oh it's not going to turn out the way that it'll want it to turn out oh my god i have five deadlines by tomorrow and i can't finish them all um, all of these things, stress, fear, anxiety, they're all forms of suffering. So sometimes when we use the word fear, people are thinking of, you know, someone with the hockey mask and Jason with the ax, right? We're not talking about that kind of fear. We're talking about this psychological fear that occupies our energy. I always refer to this as turning some applications on in your cell phone. And the fear app is a big app. It takes a lot of memory. It takes a lot of RAM. All of a sudden you're like, hey, I can't send pictures, do videos and sp- <laughs> And look at Instagram all at the same time. What's going on? I have too much too many apps going on, all the, all the Silicon Valley analogies <laughs> that, now that we're here in the, the headquarters. Yeah So fear um, fear is a giant app that turns on, and what it does is it begin, begins to direct our energy and direct our focus towards somewhere else. Um, and so
0: this of somewhere, last for somewhere a long else time. other
1: than the actual problem and, and doing some problem-solving other somewhere other than what we're trying to accomplish for example let's say you're driving your car uh somewhere you know santa cruz or auburn and you're driving the freeway and you're looking at the road and you're watching cars pass you by or trees or whatever it is mountains and all of a sudden going the other direction you see a car that looks like your wife or your girlfriend or your boy or whatever or a teacher something and you 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 look behind and say was that was that so-and-so i think wait a, wait a minute i just saw Could that be them? And so you're driving. Was that, was that my, what what is she doing over here? That she's supposed to be, what, what, why? Mm. And then an hour later, you call her. You can't get a hold of her. When do I get, can't get a hold of her? Wait a minute. Was that her? The next morning, was she supposed to be, what? what? Your mind is occupied with this thought, right? This thought of fear. You might even connect the dots and say, oh, maybe she's somewhere she shouldn't be. That had to have been her. And your, your whole attention is diverted from driving for how long? A day, two days, until you get an answer. Maybe you got an answer that you didn't like. So now you're turning on another set of, that was kind of a weird answer. Is that the answer I was looking for? So now you're diverting more energy and more attention to other things that aren't even real. We call that tr- crossing into the world of truths or the world of falsehoods. So when we dedicate emotions like fear uh, to situations or, or instances and aren't necessarily real we think they're real because we think something's real doesn't mean it's actually real because we feel fear doesn't mean there's actual fear right almost never is almost never is right i mean fear is a delusion doesn't mean it's not real because it is real you feel it but the actual thing that you are afraid of is possibly a delusion because it hasn't happened yet and that moment is a delusion if you're afraid of losing a race and then you lose it, okay. You're afraid of losing the race and then you lost the race. But Henry Ford was famous for a very, very great quote that said, whether you think you can or whether you think you can't, you're right. So were you afraid of the race and you lost because you were afraid of losing and you fulfilled your destiny? I don't know. It's hard to say. But the point is, nothing good is going to come from running the emotion of fear as well as actually you know, just focusing on what you can do to solve it.
0: Yeah, I remember getting, getting hit with these insights and going for, for hours on it in, in, the, uh, in the leadership retreat. And then there's some, there some uh, counter, counter punching back saying, well, wait a second, Dave. Um, the fear is what motivates me to get up in the morning and work really hard so I can keep my position at the top of the sales force or something like that. And that's I, I need these kind of things. Otherwise, I'd be uh, relaxing and uh,
1: sitting on the lounge chair reading a novel all day. Well, yeah, that was kind of fun interaction. Uh, if you need fear to live, I think there's something wrong. Um, if you need fear to, to do what you're doing every day, then you're probably doing the wrong thing. If you need fear as a motivator, there actually was one woman who was, was a different retreat. She said, I have so much stress, my hair's falling out, but I need this to succeed. I need that drive. Now that's kind of the extreme, right? But even if you cross over into that realm that I need fear to actually do what I'm doing, you're doing the wrong thing. You should be doing things because you love it. You should be motivated because you love it. What type of motivation is more pure and more powerful, fear or love? For a lot of people it's fear because it's more prevalent. Hmm. But love is just love of doing something. In fact, I think you're I mean I I think one of the reasons why we hit it off so well is your story connected so well to what I teach and you didn't even know it. I'm not sure how many of your listeners know your story, but it's phenomenal. And I'll tell you the tidbits that I found incredible was that you quit your job at an accounting firm because of the love of something. And then you, you did it purely for the love of it. And your success was found because of the love of it where your competitors failed because they competed for the reward of the race not because of the race itself. They were focused on winning, not on racing. And they diverted their attention for the fear of losing or the excessive desire for winning, which is the same thing. The, desire, the, the obsessive desire to win is the same thing as the obsessive desire not to fail, right? And so you did it for the love of it. And that was an incredible story, and it fits so well into this. And so loving something, enjoying something is the recipe for longevity, And the true recipe for success. Not that you can't be successful with fear. That's not the point. The point is it's not the recipe for longevity. It's not the recipe for prolonged success or prolonged enjoyment. And you're going to have a lot more fun doing it. Or the
0: recipe for healthy, balanced lifestyle, even if you are successful. And I think we see so many examples of the world of celebrity and the top athletes doing train wreck lifestyle behavior because they're poorly adjusted human beings because all they've done is had this maniacal drive to succeed, driven and motivated by fears or right. someone who told them they weren't good enough and unresolved issues and all this stuff floating around. Jeez, um, I was even so sad to, to, to read about after the Masters, this guy, Patrick Reed, he won the Masters tournament, golf tournament, first time young guy, right. great breakthrough. And then uh, he's estranged from his family and there's all this noise going on and these infightings and it's you know, in an article about the poor golfer who's just trying to make birdies uh, but these, this, this thing that uh, you know, comes to be this you know, monster drive to succeed and conquer the world it doesn't necessarily guarantee happiness and we have over and over examples of so what if you're successful? It's you know, are, are you a nice person? Are you cutting people off in the parking lot because you have a better car or what have you?
1: Well, you know, fear to me is is a multi-layered issue. So number one, I call this a, the squirrel nut theory. Did I, did I go over this? I second, think so, yeah. Three? So for a lot of people, they they derive a lot of personal value from winning or they derive a lot of personal value from having trophies or medals or money or fancy cars. And they value themselves based on what they have or what they do, or they value themselves based on what others think of them. Mm. So when they win... And people think highly of them Then they feel good And when they lose And they stop getting the press They think badly of themselves They no longer get this This um, boost in personal Mm valuation If you value yourself Based on those things You can't necessarily control those things So let's say I value myself as, as a runner And I go to this race And I win And everyone's like Oh my god, you're so great Okay, I won I feel great So I feel really valuable. Now I have another race to do. Oh, my legs kind of hurt. I kind of hurt myself. I overtrained or I tripped or someone bumped into me. I don't know. I hurt myself for some random reason. So then I lose the race. Okay. So if I value myself based on winning and now I lost because of an injury, I'm pretty low. And I had nothing to do with it. So now my valuation of who I am as a person is based on other things other than what I can do as an individual. So when we value ourselves based on these winnings or the reward rather than the journey, we feel horrible about ourselves when we don't win any longer. And so what does it take to value ourselves based on something else? It's vulnerability. Hmm. We have to be vulnerable. We have to accept that we're not always going to be the best. We have to accept that we're not always going to have the nicest car and value ourselves based on something else other than winning. Value ourselves based on lots of other things, but predominantly not the reward. And we're talking... Uh,
0: about this big picture example. Let's say in my story, I was a racer and I I went to do the triathlon circuit. I quit my job and uh, there was a big race and I won. And then uh, I I got too stuck on myself and I struggled because I pushed and forced things to happen that weren't naturally meant to be because I got consumed by my success. Then I had to recalibrate, get over myself, That's why I named my podcast that term that we're constantly working hard on getting over ourselves Mm -hmm. and just doing things with that pure motivation to enjoy the experience and and not attach your self-esteem to the results. And so I feel like these come out in micro-examples Throughout the day, and our, yeah. it's like a pinball machine where our self-esteem is constantly—you know—we're one one inch away or one bumper pin away from getting getting thrown off our uh, our, right. our wonderful mood that we started the morning with, and then something comes something comes up in the office, like "Oh, nice of you to show up," says the boss, and then you make a defensive comment back, and then you get into an unhealthy exchange, and you're deflated, and all that positive energy is gone. And it's a tough way to live because it is so fragile instead of having something that's more intrinsic where you know you're doing the best you can, you don't make excuses, you don't have any stories. Um, gosh, you think about, you know, teenagers sitting in the circle and they're all trying to find themselves and identify themselves and be be part of a group or fit in. And you, you make the wrong comment and someone says, lame, and everyone laughs. And just right. like that, your day's you ruined. Are and it's really... Um, it's tough for a teenager, but then when we're 47 years old and we're having a little spit spat with our 49 year old older brother, cause he's always treating me like the kid doesn't think I can do anything or whatever. Um, you know, this, this stuff carries out and you, you can see the writing on the wall. It's like, I got to get over myself. I have to recalibrate. And especially the thing that, um, came up for me because, you know, we can express fears about so many things. You can just come up with 10 right away off the top of your
1: head. If you're listening now, pause the tape and write down your 10 biggest fears. So, you know, listening to you talk kind of reminds me of Tiger Woods a bit. Not that I know all of his story, but certainly the press has spoken a lot of it. And the impressions that come out is that when he loved the sport and just loved to play, he won. And when he lost because of his personal problems, all he wants to do is win again, and he can't win for the life of him. I'm sure his injuries have something to do with it. But certainly, the way he looks, acts, and feels is that he just wants to win rather than just loving the game. And I think when you think about fear, you know, it's one of those things that inside of our minds, we think things are what they are when they're really not. And we can control what we think about. I mean, when we hear and think and see things, our eyes actually don't really see the things that we see, our eyes just take the information in. The, the, the light, and then our brain interprets what it is. Same thing with our ears. Our ears don't actually hear anything. They get vibrations, and then our brain decides what to turn those vibrations into. Same thing with our mind. Things that we hear or think, for, for most of us, fear is, if I lose this, it's bad, right? If I don't become successful, it's bad. And we're the ones determining whether those things are good or bad. And we had the power to say, hey, if I don't win, it's okay. And there needs to be a really, really clear distinction between wanting to win and having fear of not winning. Because you can want to win. Okay, that's an entirely different thing. I want it, I want, when it becomes obsessive, where it's going to make you feel emotionally um, different or alter and turn those applications on of fear, right, that's when it becomes the distinction, the, the distincting point or the line, so to speak, or the margin, you can want to win, and you can want to do well, and you can want to excel. Very you, badly. Very you can badly. You be a killer out there. And, right? and then if you don't, why would you be upset? If you love the sport, and you wanted to win, and you love it so much that you did all the things you needed to do to win, like Brad Kearns did in all of his races, did all the things you needed to do to win. You listened to your body. You had fun doing it. You love training. You love running you love swimming, you you love all these things about it, you love the grit, you love getting hurt, you love feeling tired, right? You love doing all the things, you love playing chess with your body. And then you come in second. Okay, great, let's go training for the next one. I love this sport, let's go do it again. Right. That's the ideal peak
0: performance mindset. Now let's apply that to this job interview that you so desperately want and you come in second, or you're applying to graduate school and you've gone through all the processes and take the tests and you find out that it didn't work out. And uh, I'm I'm making up a counterexample because we so often hear these empowering thoughts, and then we go right back into our little hole. That's easy for you to say. Uh, you don't have, you know, the, the bills piling up, and I, I am afraid of uh, losing my job. And then they go, they go right back into that, um, into that uh, fixed and in, in struggling mindset. But you did a good job. I mean, not not that these examples came up with that dynamic group we had, but you did a good job, kind of taking us further down that road. To show us that, uh, in fact, it is okay to, uh, you know, n- not reach all these uh, lofty goals that you have, but just the fact that you're doing your best and you've, you've overcome your fears, you've redirected your thoughts towards something more empowering, which is the,
1: um, what do we call it, the values and the vision, right? Right. Well, I mean, to take on your first question, I think this related to a job interview, So let's say you have this great interview with somebody, you want this job, you really, really want it, and you just nail it out of the park. And then the guy you're interviewing with takes your resume, he takes it in the back room, and they're going to talk about who to hire, and some big belligerent person comes in and they spill coffee on your resume, or they say, I don't like this person's name, they remind me of my jerky nephew. Who knows what discussion is happening in that room? Maybe somebody wants their their brother to get the job instead of you. There's so many things that are out of our control that happen. So you come out, you don't get the job. Why would you be upset about that? You did your best. You tried your hardest. Oh, because life's not fair. And I get super upset if I don't get something I deserve. I love that because I love that. I read this in a book. The reason why we end up suffering is because we think we shouldn't suffer. I'm so excited to introduce you to Paluva.
0: This is a new... Please visit paluva.com, that's P-E-L-U-V-A, and use the code BRADPODCAST and get 10% off your first pair. Paluvas, let your feet be feet. and a special 5% discount for BRAD podcast listeners. Just visit MITOREDLight, M I T O REDLight.com, and use the code BRAD on any of their products. Go for it today and get started on your red light journey. We think we're special, right?
1: Oh. We think we're special. There's
0: our pull quote. Brian, <laughs> his, his audio master. We got one for the for the picture
1: and everything, right there. We we think we're special. We think we deserve all these things. We think that all these things are are geared for us. And in fact, when we complain about not having things, complaining is a form of superiority. It's a form of um, comparing ourselves to a situation we thought we should have had. I'm supposed to have this. I didn't have that, so I'm upset. And not because I'm upset, I'm going to complain about it. This is the mechanism of our fear and our brain taking over and telling us how we should feel. We should feel devalued because we didn't get the job. We should feel like, hey, we have the right to complain. They hired They hired nepotism, Got didn't, didn't get me this job. Well, it's allowed to. Security does not exist in nature. Just because you feel like you should you should feel secure. It doesn't mean it actually exists. It's a false sense of security to even think about feeling secure. The most wealthy, most powerful man or woman in the country gets cancer. Their level of security changes very, very quickly. The priorities. Yeah. but I mean, look at Steve Jobs. Yeah. I mean, he, he gave this, there was kind of a quote going around on Facebook or something about his dying words. Mm. Um, and it was all about loving what you do. I, mean, I encourage anyone to go look that up. as Steve Jobs' last words before he dies? The guy had accomplished everything he'd ever wanted to accomplish in in business. Um, incredibly creative guy, influential guy. Um, you know, modern day Thomas Edison, so to speak. And his whole message on his deathbed was: "Love what you do." So it's not just my ideas. I'm just here to help mm-hmm. promote them. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: Well, another thing that, uh,
0: speaking of fear, that that we we got in the course was that these uh, these these fearful uh, emotions arise from uh, two places:
1: your beliefs mm-hmm. or your ego. Yeah. So your ego or or your false version of yourself. I, I think when we use ego, people think, "Oh, I don't have an ego, so that's not me." Um, ego is just another word for a false version of yourself, okay? And so I don't want to, people to, to, to run with that, that word ego and all of a sudden think about, oh, I don't have an ego problem, I don't drive a convertible, and I'm not having a, a crisis, okay? I mean a false version of yourself. And a false version of yourself is when you feel something, when you say something, when you act in a certain way that you're not choosing, then you're not yourself. If you feel fear, like I said, stop and process that. Just because you feel it doesn't mean it's real. So if you run with that, that's not really you. You're running and living in falsehoods. You're not processing what this fear came from. It's just something that's running you off down the river and you're saying, oh my God, I'm afraid. Oh my God, I have to do this. Oh, you know you're not really planning out your next move if you're not in control of what you feel and what you say if you can't control exactly what you want to say then somebody else is and that somebody else is your fear mechanism this big part of your brain that reacts for you so an example would be getting into an argument
0: on the basketball court and almost coming to blows because you couldn't control your your
1: ego or your I'll give you a great example this weekend my son had a water polo tournament And their team was winning, and the goalie became more and more frustrated. And you saw him begin to unravel. You saw the goalie of the other team throwing the ball, come on, guys, get it together. And I'm thinking, you know, this guy isn't in control, um, and he's going to play worse and worse and worse the more he begins to blame his teammates for, you know, more shots being taken on him. He's not in control of his emotions if he thinks being upset – an emotional is going to make him a better player or make his team a better team. Yelling at them isn't necessarily going to motivate them. And unraveling and yelling and getting frustrated and showing, displaying all this emotion isn't going to help him be a better goalie. Yeah, it might be a
0: band aid in certain ways. And we see this in relationships where you're trying to uh, navigate a conflict and you do it with sheer force, like as a parent or in a partnership. Uh, we see it in, uh, you know, McEnroe on the tennis court. It Was famous for bearing down, and he you can look at his records, and he really did play better when he started to have his temper tantrums. But it seems to me kind of a, a superficial band aid for the, uh, you know, the, the unaddressed core problems that keep coming out as manifestations of fear, such as such as the the parent uh, screaming at the unruly kid, or or um, you know any example you can put forth.
1: Well, I think the, the 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 real response is are we doing something that's going to make our performance better or worse? And do we have the power to choose that? Now, if McEnroe thinks yelling at the umpire is going to get him a better result and it works and that's calculating and he's choosing that and that's being used for effect, great. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's going through his mind. He's, he's, he's probably – they
0: play a lot of tennis matches year round. It's hard to get rallied you know every point and get that high intensity so that was probably his gateway to the next level of focus and concentration just because it is hard to summon day after day after day. It's like, I remember um, not feeling like going out on a workout and so I'd crank up some heavy metal music into my Walkman. That's how old I am as we had Walkmans with cassettes going out there. (laughs) But it was something that, you know, sort of an artificial way to jack you up into a different emotional state. And, you know, I suppose it's allowed, it's better than taking an artificial substance, but the underlying idea there was like, you need to have your your tunes to enable you to go pedal the bike. You can't just pedal the bike and go, oh, here I am doing what I love and going out in nature. So sometimes we um, we have yeah. to navigate things and use t- tips and tricks and techniques. But when you use those um, th- those negative motivators and things like that, that's what I want to uncover is like, is there a better way And I think, um, we were, we were off the, um, we were off the clock at dinner and you were kind of processing me and I was saying, yeah, I do have some fear about starting this new direction in my career and starting this new podcast. And what if no one likes it and no one listens to it? And, um you know, we're going further and further down the line. And it's like, if I can come back to my values and my vision and my values and my vision is that I want to um, get people to tell their stories, to extract interesting information that's helpful to me. And that's my that's my starting point. That's all I can control. And I sure hope, and I cross my fingers that it'll be helpful to other people. But if I'm in that pure motivation space, just for doing this show, is like, I enjoy talking with you and I get value from it. And if that's all that All that happens, and everyone else hates the show. I've still had you know, the best way to spend my day and, and hopefully you too, because you like talking about this stuff. This is your passion. And if, if we, if we don't have to focus on anything beyond that, if we don't have to worry about our numbers and the spike in listenership at our from, from minute 30 to minute 40 and analyze and break that down. And I think we, we waste a lot of time measuring and judging everything we do rather than just
1: staying with that vision and, and the values that are, that are driving us deep down. It's like saying, um, Hey, I'm only going to do this podcast if a thousand people listen to it. Because if I don't get a thousand people, I'm not doing it. That's absurd. I mean, you know, we don't do things because we 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 have to have some level of success to do them. Now, clearly, we need money and we need to live and all those things. Don't get me wrong. Okay, so let's say um, you do this because you love it, and you, you, obviously, you're in you're in, in in line with all of this. Uh, but you, you're you not doing it because you have X number of listeners. You do it because you love it. You want to help people. You like it. You get value from it, and you do it because you love it. And let's say it's not paying the bills. That just is a motivation to say, I need to tweak this a little bit, to tweak what I love, but also make it work within the monetary boundaries that I have. That's not fear. That's calculating. That's planning. That's planning. You can still do what you love and find ways to make money at it and find ways to live. So maybe you lower your means of living because you love it so much. Like what if someone loves to be a teacher and they don't make a lot of money, but they love it. Like why would we judge they don't have a lot of money? And we do. Society judges others the way we judge ourselves, right? I'm, I'm special because I have money. But we don't value ourselves based on I'm special because I'm happy or I'm special because I love what I do. We value people based on what they have or what others think of them. The point is you can plan. You, know, you were right. You were at the workshop when people did raise their hand and say, hey, I, I do need money and I need fear to motivate me. But, but there's, a, there's a division between when fear is like fog on a windshield and blurs your vision. We make decisions based on fear rather than planning to make sure the things that we're fearful of can't be managed. Really disciplined investors, people in business mm-hmm. do this. They man- they're so disciplined. We call it discipline. We manage risk, okay? They don't let their emotions get away from them with the deal because it costs lots of money. You always heard the phrase, don't chase a deal. Don't get emotional over buying a property mm. because they're disciplined. They know that emotions cost you money. Mm. And so this same type of philosophy in business, we see the same thing in business and in sports and in music and in art People are at their peak performances when they don't think about it, when they're in the zone and they just love what they're doing. A friend of mine played for the Dallas Cowboys and he would say, there were these moments when everything just clicked and I didn't think about what I was doing and I played my best and I had my best games when I wasn't overthinking. And this is the same thing that we see with other peak performance industries like business. We don't need to have the emotion we need to register it, we need to think about it, we need to process it, and then we need to decide what to do with it. But don't let fear be the fog of the, over the windshield that obscures your vision of what you actually really need to do. So we talked about
0: the ego part of that and how, how it, it's a pretty natural connection to realize how the, the protecting of our ego can elicit fears. And then the other
1: part was that your beliefs are also another source of fear. How does that... Well, I mean, ego could be a discussion for hours and we kind of just scratched the surface, but I think you kind of understand it. Um, your belief structure, for example, there's a thing called a placebo effect. I'm sure everyone's aware of, you know, 18% of people believe that a pill with sugar cures, you know, cholesterol, high cholesterol. know it does. They literally become cured of high cholesterol. And why is that? They believe it. They believe mm-hmm. that, that it works. Now, the other 80%, 82% um, don't believe it. And so we don't know exactly why certain people believe certain things. They just do. It's the way they are raised. It's the observations that they had. And so these belief structures that become part of us um, affect the way we, we, we live life. You can take two people and put them in the same situation in the military and maybe a post-traumatic stress situation, and one will have PTSD and one will not. And the reason is that one of them has a belief structure that doesn't cause them to look at the events the same way that somebody else does, who maybe was raised in a different environment, who saw these events as being very traumatic. So these beliefs that we have cause fear in us. Um, And I use an example of these two kids jumping off of a bridge. Mm -hmm. If You've all been on vacation, and you've seen a bunch of people standing over a bridge or over a rock, and people are jumping off into water. Some people are afraid— some are not, right? So what is the corresponding thought that drives the emotion? Well, typically in a situation like this, people are standing on top of a rock and they have the thought that the jump is dangerous. And there are other people that have a thought that is not dangerous. So the person who thinks it's dangerous has a corresponding emotion of fear and the person who has a thought that it's fun does not. The person with a thought of fun jumps and the person with a thought of danger does not. So what makes those two people think of those thoughts differently It's their underlying belief structure that says, hey, these types of things are dangerous. Another person says, hey, I've been around jumping off of rocks a lot, and these types of things look fun. So beliefs can affect our thoughts, and our thoughts affect our emotions. And so we have the ability to change our beliefs and change our thoughts. So we change those thoughts by reprogramming, or we change those thoughts by evidence, so if we're on top of a rock and we see nine-year-old kids jumping off, it's pretty substantial evidence that it's not dangerous, and I too can jump. Granted, it's deep enough. But the point is, evidence can change can allow us to change our beliefs and change our thoughts. So if we're afraid and it's tied to danger, get some information whether it's dangerous or not.
0: That's nice that you attach those because uh, it's a big difference from just speaking into the microphone and saying, don't be afraid or change yeah. your beliefs. Um, and so the, um, the, the evidence factor is, puts it back in our control. And, but it's, it's, it's just like, hold on a second. Okay.
1: It's just like jumping off that, that rock or that bridge is the same thing as the placebo effect, right? Um, certain evidence will allow us to accept that jumping off the rock is not dangerous. Watching the other kid go flying. Right. But other people still won't jump. It's not compelling enough evidence. Mm. Just like a placebo effect. Someone comes in with a white coat with a pill. This is going to cure cholesterol. Okay. They believe it. They accept it. Just like they see a nine-year-old jumping off the rock, they too feel that's suitable evidence. Other people say, I don't buy the cholesterol pill. I want to see my cholesterol go down Mm. before I accept this pill. Right? Right. So same thing with jumping off the rock. You know, I don't trust that the nine-year-old is safe because maybe the water is more shallow and I'm going to go deeper and their mind goes to all these places. So evidence isn't only the only um, panacea for, for overcoming and changing these beliefs. But who holds those beliefs? We do. Mm-hmm. If we really want to change these beliefs, we can change them. We can look at them. We can think about them. We can process them. And we can decide if this belief is suitable for what we want to achieve or not. Examples every day. And
0: um, it's interesting because a lot of us don't even realize that what, what these things floating around are, in fact, beliefs. They just think that same-sex marriage is wrong, period. Mm-hmm. Uh, why? Because the Bible says so, or whatever their, uh, whatever their argument is, but they don't realize it's their own personal belief or, or the, the argument for a pro-choice versus a pro-life. Well, you guys are wrong on the other side. I'm not even going to share which side I'm on. It's just the other side's totally wrong. It's ridiculous and terrible and awful. But you that's know- a belief. Right. until you even I've had arguments with people where they couldn't even acknowledge that it was a belief rather than a, an absolutism of the planet Earth, like the sun comes up and, and goes down every day or the earth's round. the Earth's round is you know pretty much a belief because we can't see it round until we get that evidence of going in a spaceship or something right um but just just to get the conversation back on that level sometimes takes a stretch, and okay, that was an easy example that yeah, you have beliefs about same sex marriage for or against or maybe a belief that you shouldn't butt into other people's business and you don't even, you don't even have a belief on either side that you yeah. so you can have these beliefs. Uh, but then that's, that's sort of an awakening at the first level. And then you can start wondering if these beliefs are no longer serving you. For example, ones you've held near and dear for part of your life and you want to progress to the next level or something.
1: Well, I'll give you a couple of examples. So one of the beliefs that plague a lot of us is low self-esteem and, um, I use this phrase a lot when I talk to people. You can change any belief, any time, about anything, as often as you want. We hold the key to all of these beliefs. And the one reason why we don't, and, and this person I was talking to said they have low self-esteem, which is not uncommon. I, a lot of people I talk to say they have low self-esteem. And, I, and they even said, I don't even know where I got it or why I have it. <sighs> which most people say also. They, they get it from the way they were raised. They get it because they compare themselves to somebody else. They set some imaginary standard of what they think they should have compared to somebody else, and they don't have it, and then they feel lower about themselves. Or as a kid, a coach said, hey, you're not that good at this. Mm-hmm. And oh, okay, I'm not that good at this. And then the next coach, well, the coach in the last team said I wasn't that good at this, so I don't think I'm that good at this. And then you're back to Henry Ford's quote, "You know, if you think you can, mm-hmm. you think you can't, you, know, you can't. So, so you're back into breeding this pattern or this path, kind of like the shortcut in the grass that no longer is grass; it becomes the, the dirt path. Mm. You're wearing in a path of Oof. low self-esteem. Right now, and, and you, not, I mean, those are
0: real nervous system wiring. We're not talking about a right. This is not an analogy to the, the, dirt, the dirt path. Is talking about your brain is getting hardwired that yes. you suck at singing, and therefore,
1: Whew Well, the opposite. I actually have this in my book. Uh, the, the, uh, American Idol syndrome, the singers that are told they're great. And then they go in front of a judge and they say they stink. And then these people are all angry, but I've been told I'm great my whole life. I'm, of course I'm great. But the point is the reason why it's hard for us to change the belief of, of, um, low self-esteem is because it requires a lot of vulnerability, Mm. right? So I said to this person, well, a lot of people who who have this issue choose to have high self-esteem. What do you mean? Well, you've chosen to accept low self-esteem and you don't even know where you've got it from. So why don't you choose high self-esteem? What do you mean? Well, is low self-esteem serving you well? What do you mean? (laughs) Is that helping you to have low self-esteem? Well, not really. Then choose high self-esteem. Now, it sounds easy, and it actually is. It is easy if you can do one thing, and that is plunge into the world of vulnerability and accept rejection. Hmm. And because when you you value yourself based on something other than the tenets of ego— Right? When you value yourself and the fact that you're valuable and that you have life and that you have meaning and that you have purpose as a, as a living human being, which a lot of other people don't have, people who are sick or people who are dying. that mm-hmm. um, When you really rely on that as your valuation system, then the word rejection doesn't exist because you don't devalue yourself based on rejection. Rejection is just a thing.
0: and a special 5% discount for B Rad podcast listeners just visit mitoredlight mito redlight.com M-I-T-O red and use the code BRAD on any of their products go for it today and get started on your red light journey I want to tell you about WildHealth.com. They're an online provider of comprehensive precision medicine and health consultation services. They offer DNA analysis, custom lab panels, extensive medical intake form with family history and lifestyle preferences, and regular online visits with a board-certified precision medicine physician and a health coach whom you can message anytime through their convenient app. Wild Health evaluates your data to determine what you need for nutrition, exercise, sleep, and supplements, and you can experiment, consult, and retest to get everything dialed in you'll get a cutting-edge epigenetic test of DNA methylation to calculate your all-important biological age and have fun lowering your age over time instead of following the mainstream path to accelerated aging. It's time to strive for awesome instead of just normal. Wild Health is generously extending Brad podcast listeners 20% off the cost of membership. Just visit wildhealth.com/brad or use the code BRAD20 at checkout to get 20% off and start taking control
1: of your health today at wildhealth.com/brad. It's not a bad thing, it's just a thing. You don't devalue yourself if you Try to have high self esteem when you get knocked down. It doesn't become something that knocks you down. It says, oh, okay, it just is what it is. I'm still valuable. Do you, you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, um, you're, you're, you're over it. You're, you're above the fray. Well, you're not valuing yourself based on what someone else thinks of you. Right. How I much mean, success have you had controlling what other people think of you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so ask me how I am
0: as a singer. I don't know. I've never <laughs> made any money as a singer, but if I enjoy it, then I'm a great singer because I enjoy it. I I, I might just be in the shower this is just such a common example of people yeah. say oh, I'm such a terrible Singer, or, or you know, I'm a terrible golfer. Bear with me as we play together for the first time. I'm, I, I, I'm going to hold you back. I know it. I, I haven't played in so long. These aren't even my clubs. My shoes are too tight. Right. Whatever. Right. But it's like a great golfer is the person that goes out there and celebrates other people's good shots and comments yep. on the Love the, the scenery and the wonderful golf. And that that person's a great golfer. It's not the score because I've played with a lot of people that can score low golf scores. Um, but they're lousy to play with because they yeah. have a temper or they're, they like to cheat here and there,
1: or all those other examples. Well, I, you know, I'll tell you another example. It's like saying, hey, um, I tried to have high self-esteem, but I got rejected. And so I feel worse about myself. And while I was walking across the street, I got hit by a car, and I'm on life support system. But because I feel badly about myself and I wasn't successful at my efforts to have high self-esteem, I'm not going to try so hard to live because uh, I think lower of myself. I mean, that's an absurd scenario. Of course you're going to fight for life. Of course you love life. Life is life. Whether or not you were successful in tennis or golf or whether you're not, just because you think you're bad at something doesn't mean your life has left value. And yet people value their success as the value of their life. When it doesn't value. It values your situation, but it shouldn't devalue you. So you can imagine telling the doctor, um, you know, doc, I only came in second in this race. Go go work on that patient first. Yeah, I came in second. And I know these injuries are life-threatening, but I'm really not that important because I came in second or third or fourth or whatever. And so my life has less value, so maybe you should work on them first. How many people think have ever done that in the emergency room? Uh. But people use life and death situations to actually appreciate the value of life. Mm right? And we should, we should appreciate the value of life. I know it sounds super cliche and I teach a lot of tips on how to believe this and how to walk through life with this, but we don't need a near-death experience or a near-death event to appreciate the value of life. It's back to that worn-in grass. You can make the worn-in grass pattern that life is enough, that I'm good enough because I'm here. I'm good enough because I have life and I don't need to make myself feel better or worse because I come in second place or third place or fourth place or first place. It doesn't matter. My value is the same. I want to come in first, but I'm not devalued if I don't. I mean, I, I think you understand the distinction. And applied to anything, you're
0: giving the race analogy, but this is, it could go toward um, uh, being a parent, being in the workplace. Uh, so now if we're going to accept this new paradigm, how do we reconcile with that idea that what got us here today was that competitive intensity and that work ethic and that little voice inside in the back of my head that says you're not good enough unless you get out there and outwork your uh, your competitors by 10% or all these these notions that we share and a lot of times we even celebrate like I got to the top because I worked harder than anybody else I got up an hour earlier and I took my magic potion drink and then I just you know kicked some butt and I, I, I took on all challengers and uh, all these all these great things where um, we're forgetting about the happiness element and what the repercussions are of just
1: being motivated by fear a whole life. so how do we how do we kind of ascend to the next level? Well I think all these tips and tricks you talk about like listening to music isn't necessarily driven by fear they're actually driven by desire and they're driven by um, the love of wanting to excel at something the love of the sport you know we do fatigue is real we do have a mind body connection mind body and spirit and these things are real I mean there is a physical aspect to us and a non-physical aspect to us. These things working in balance and in tandem you know, provide and produce a better whole than if they are not in balance, if they're all excelling. And so you know, working out harder because you are motivated to beat somebody else, and you make a game out of it, maybe you cut their picture out, you put it on a wall, oh, there's my competitor, I want to beat them. That's all fun. Mm-hmm. The, the, the difference is when you add the emotion to it, that you devalue yourself if you don't beat that person. I mean, using things for motivation is fun that's 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 the fun of the sport, I mean trash talking or you know all these things it's it's when you cross that line and you turn the application of fear on mm. that distracts your performance mm. rather than enhances your performance, yeah, and I, this can be in any life situation, yeah, if you're going into a business meeting trying to close a deal, you know business is one of the situations where people sense and they can smell fear and and Um, you respond to fear. You respond to being heard. You respond to being defensive. You respond to the outcome. Most people are in jobs they don't necessarily like. And so they're always fear-based driven jobs. And, you know, you don't always have to respond to the things you don't like about your job. You usually don't like them because they trigger some fear in you that makes it unpleasurable but that again is just the light of the of the vision or the vibration of what you're hearing you're interpreting these words as being bad when in fact they can just be words they don't have to be bad words yeah i was at a uh, like a retreat a seminar thing you know
0: intensive weekend retreat for 12 hours every day and i remember this skit where the presenter uh, had someone stand up and he charged over to this guy uh, and, and got six inches from his face. And he said, you know something, Bob? You're a green frog. And he screamed at the guy and the spit came out <laughs> and the thing. And the guy started laughing and everybody in the room started laughing. And he's like, wait a second, you know, why are you laughing? And he, he broke it down, broke it down. And, and it's because, well, because I'm not a green frog. Exactly, you're not a green frog. So when someone comes up and does the same thing and says, you're an asshole, why are you
1: getting so bent out of shape? Right. Ego tells us we know ourselves by how we think we know ourselves. We define ourselves. So if I said, hey, Brad, you're a horrible pastry chef, you're going to go, okay. But if I go, hey, Brad, you're a horrible podcaster, whoa, 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 wait a minute. If you you actually don't care about whether or not I view you as being good or bad— you can actually listen to what I'm saying. Really, Dave, I understand mm-hmm. you think I'm a bad podcaster. Right. Why my, my is it? I like to crossed. learn from that.
0: <laughs> if my fingers are crossed <laughs> behind my back at first, that's okay too. And yeah. I, I know I've, I've, uh, like, like you suggest, fake it till you make it sometimes. And I know I, I can recall situations where I'm receiving critical feedback and I don't like it and I think the person's full of shit. Whatever it might have been in a work situation or something, but I, I kept those fingers crossed behind my back and I was smiling and nodding my head and listening. And by just the mere act of doing so, by faking it until I made it, rather than getting defensive and, and blurting out exactly what was on my mind at that time, like, well, at least I'm, uh, right. you know, how, how dare you, you know, criticize my writing skills when you're not even a writer, but
1: wait a second. Is there something of value to be heard here? Or if what difference can, does it make? Right. I could be off my rocker. Like Who am I to judge anything? Right. The, the, the point is that, you know, when we, there's a book called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Have you heard of that book? Fantastic. Okay. Mark Manson. So when you yeah. actually don't give a fuck is when you can actually learn and listen and grow. Right. That's when you're Why? the most powerful. Yeah. Right. Why would we get upset? We get An insult is when someone calls us or tells us something that's different from how we perceive ourselves. Am I allowed to think that you're a horrible podcaster? Right. Am I allowed to be stupid? Right. Am I allowed to not know what I'm talking about? Yes. It doesn't really matter. It shouldn't devalue you. You're not doing this podcast because you're concerned about what I think. And yet we get insulted when people call us something that hits near and dear to our heart. Okay, so why is it near and dear
0: to our heart? Does that mean my, my ego and my self-esteem is wrapped up in what you think of me, I suppose? Well,
1: the, the five tenets of ego are we, know, we, we feel value by how what we have. We find value in ourselves based on what we do. We find value in ourselves based on what others think of us. And we find value in ourselves based on how we know ourselves. And the fifth one is we find value in the fact that we're special and unique in this world. Mm that doesn't mean you're not great. It means you're not special and unique in this world. We're not. We're all we all, all of our values of life are the same. If we were locked in an elevator and only one of us could get out, it'd be an interesting debate to say who's more important. I mean, we're all the value of our lives are all the same. Certainly there's arguments that young kids have, you know, futures ahead of them, but ultimately life is life. And so, you know, the point is that We get upset when we know ourselves as something. And why do we know ourselves as these things? We attach to them. We're taught these things. We like these things about ourselves. So Eckhart Tolle has this great quote that says, the less of you you become, the more of you you are. So when you begin to shed who you are or who you think you are, the real you comes out. So if you forget that you're this fantastic triathlete and you just wipe that belief off the face of the earth, just completely obliterate it. It doesn't mean you're not going to remember anything about triathlons or training. It means that you don't feel any propensity to defend yourself if someone says, hey, you're X, Y, and Z, or you, you sucked at this race and you should in this and that race. You can say, oh, cool. I wonder why you think that. I'd like to understand that. Why? What's your background? Mm-hmm. Why do you think that? What information do you have? Maybe I can learn something from it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because you're no longer you don't no you're no longer lining it up with how you know yourself. It just is what it is. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You're, that's you're, an
1: important thing to forget who you are. You're, you're rising above again. You're rising well, above I don't think there. that's rising. I mean, you're, you're, in, in layman's terms, yes. But when you forget who you are and you erase that, you don't forget your memories or what you know. You just no longer know yourself as anything. And when someone asks you a question the real you comes out, not the you who you think you are. You know, I'm Brad Kearns and I have to be funny because I know myself as funny. So I have to respond funny. When when you forget anything about yourself, you're just going to respond the way that feels natural. You're just going to respond the way you want to respond. And if it's funny, it's funny. If it's poignant, it's poignant. It just is what it is. You don't think about it. You respond with feeling, not with thinking. Mm. So Einstein said the highest form of intelligence is intuition. Mm. So when you begin to be who you are, through your essence, without knowing who you are, without layering pretense or layering how you know yourself that makes you feel good about yourself at night. So when you sleep, you can say, hey, I'm good at this. When you get rid of those things, your intuition takes What's over. left, yeah. Your intuition, yeah. the essence of you, the real you. When you remove the false parts of you, the real you is there. And then all of your responses are going to be authentic and real. You're not going to feel vulnerability because you don't value yourself based on what people think. So you're allowed to be vulnerable. You're allowed to be raw. You're allowed to be authentic. You're allowed to open yourself up because you're really not afraid of of being called a bad uh, triathlete because it really doesn't matter to you. You did it because you love it. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, so regarding the vulnerability, because a lot of times we misinterpret what that means, and I think the first uh, basic definition that's been bantered about is uh, lack of protection or something. We're vulnerable to uh, an attack in the alley because it's dark and our cell phone battery died or whatever. Um, But really, we're trying to get a more nuanced definition. Brene Brown does great work here to talk about.
1: um, Yeah, I think vulnerability is really key. I think vulnerability is... is open yourself up for observation and for judgment and for ridicule and those things. And vulnerability is being at a, at a weak time in our life, a weak a weak moment, um, doing something bad and coughing up to it and say, Hey, you know, I did this, you know, a lot of times people obfuscate and they just can't quite get there. They can't quite accept those weak moments in themselves Uh, They can't quite, Mm -hmm. and me too, too. I've I've had weak weak moments. There was a situation I did something I wasn't proud of. I had reasons why I did it. My ego kicked in. And then once I did it, I, you know, hey, you know, I'm going to open my chest and be all vulnerable. And, hey, I did this, and I'm sorry, and it was wrong, and this is kind of how it happened. There's no excuse for it, but these are are how the stars lined up, and uh, I owe you an apology. Okay, being vulnerable is being at a weak moment. And what does it take to be at a weak moment? An incredible amount of strength.
0: Hmm.
1: Which is such a paradox, actually. And then once we're vulnerable, what happens to us? We become stronger. It takes strength to be weak, Hmm. and the byproduct is strength. And so we all have a hard time being vulnerable because we think it devalues us, and it thinks that it's a sign of rejection or it's a sign of of lower valuation of our lives. But when we're on a different currency, when the currency for valuation of life is life, and I use use Viktor Frankl a lot. I'm I'm sure you've heard of him. You know, the meaning of life is that life has meaning, Uh, based on his research as an Auschwitz survivor. You know, the difference between what made prisoners live and die was their belief that their lives had meaning, meaning and purpose. And when we use that currency rather than the currency of I have to win, to be meaningful. To be meaningful. Right. Right. Then you're allowed to be vulnerable. You're allowed to race harder. You're allowed to train harder. You're allowed to train harder because you're not concerned about rejection. You're just going to do it because you love it. You have no
0: fears to hold you back. And also that fear, I think uh, going back to that argument that it was really working well for Mac and and uh, the um, the idea that we these emotions charge us up and, and bring us... Uh, to a higher level of performance or get us through the day and, and, grinding through a difficult career track. Um, they literally require energy. So they take energy away from your, your ultimate, uh, peak performance goal, your vision and your, right. your, your purpose and your values
1: and things. Right. But if um, someone came to me and said, I need fear, I, I, I need fear to survive. Great. Okay. That works for you. Great. The- mm. Theoretically, it doesn't work. Theoretically, is right. not the way it works. It's just a, disper- a dispersion of energy into the right. fear category. I'm not going to tell yeah. anybody what they're doing is wrong. To me, everyone's way of doing things is right. I may not agree with it, and I can cite examples why I why I think it's wrong, or, or I shouldn't use the word wrong. I can cite examples why I think it's not less effective than something else, right. or Whatever. Okay. Yeah. But if it works for them and they want to hold on to it, and that's what their vision is, great. I, I don't have any power to change people's minds. Only they can change their own mind. I'm not in the, I'm not in the business of changing people's minds. I'm in, I'm in the business of helping people connect dots of information they already have. People know that, that when they lie at bed at night, that they have value as a person. When they when their voices, the voices in their head or the chatter in their head, the quiet, calm, shy ones, one that gets overtaken by everything else, by our mind and our fears. That voice knows that we are happy to be alive. And when we have near-death experiences or near-death scares, right? that voice becomes a little louder and we're Mm -hmm. happy to be alive. Mm -hmm. And that voice doesn't come up very often unless it's tickled or triggered or or, or asked to come to light. But we all have that underlying feeling inside of us. It just gets trampled on by this giant mechanism in our head, which is the brain and our mind and our fears and all these mechanisms that run full-time 24 hours a day. Uh, our thoughts are thought to the source of all our pain.
0: Carrie Sisson likes to repeat that line. It's part of her spiritual psychology practice. And yeah. if you you realize it's not what happens to you, but it's what you think about what happens to you. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the pain and the ultimate pain and suffering. And then these wonderful examples of people in a concentration camp who are keeping their spirits alive and. Uh, wow. Yeah. Whatever yeah. it's taking to wake us up. I, I really have a goal of waking myself up without having to be that guy in the car accident or that got burned and, uh, or, or lost at sea for 827 days. You know, I just right. want to read that story and go, wow, <laughs> <I'm so happy. laughs> you know, I'm glad to be on land myself yeah. right now. Yeah. Uh, but not as glad as that guy, but you know, we got to pull inspiration from these, from these places. Otherwise we're just going to get
1: distracted and yeah. go into a tailspin really or change currencies. Change currencies. Change a currency that life is enough. And when mm-hmm. you believe that, your life will change. And, you know, there's a famous philosopher named Epictetus, a Greek philosopher, who said, It's not events that make you unhappy, it's your belief in them that do. When you believe that, 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 that philosophy or that quote, and it's true, um, I lost. I didn't come in first. I lost the interview. I lost the job. Uh, my spouse left the towel on the floor. I'm so mad that the towel is on the floor. It's not the event of the towel that made you upset. It's your belief that the towel shouldn't be there. It's a belief that your spouse should have removed it at your you know request, or that that represents a complete
0: lack of consideration for who I am as a person who I'm a neat freak. right. And it's it's not about the towel,
1: but it's about your disrespect of me represented by the towel. right. And and ego would would cause you to say, hey, Gosh darn it, why is this towel still here? What's wrong with you? You can't get it straight. What's wrong with you? And I was working with this couple in a similar situation. And she's like, he's got papers all over the house. He leaves them here and he leaves them there. I said, well, did you apologize to him and give him compassion? What do you mean he's leaving things all over the place? I said, well, why do not you think he's doing it on purpose? Well, of course he's not doing it on purpose, but he doesn't clean it up. Well, have you ever said, I'm so sorry, your mind is so full? How can I help you because you get distracted by leaving things around? This is your spouse. Yeah. Have compassion for the fact that his brain is so busy, he's leaving things lying around. That reminds me of John Gottman,
0: the relationship therapist. And uh, he says that uh, in every every occasion, as, as, a, as a couple, as a partnership, you're either a team or you're not a team. Yeah. And you can solve anything and address anything as a team, even if it is, hey, you're being a real jerk right now, so let's solve this issue as a team. The ultimate thing that you would right. be opponents or adversaries, right. I mean, one person's being unfair, unreasonable, ridiculous, emotional, but you can, just like you described, hey, um, let's, let's solve this problem of you being a major asshole right now, at, together
1: well, as a team, Well, I mean, and I, it's, it's possible. I mean, I, not to say I've, I've been called an asshole many times <laughs> in, in, in my marriage, um, probably rightfully so, but the point is she's right. I can disagree and she can be right. 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 She she's right because she thinks so. Yeah. And that makes And so it, yeah. so when you when you value on a different currency, I'm not devalued because she called me a name. I'm not devalued because she's upset at me. The only emotion left is love and compassion. So it's I see that you think I'm an asshole. I'm really sorry. I it wasn't my intention. How could I help situation going forward, because mm-hmm. I really don't want you to think that. It wasn't mm-hmm. my intention. But mm-hmm. you did X, Y, and Z. Well, I didn't do it to hurt you. I understand how it did. You're right. I don't agree with you, but I'm happy to solve your problem with this. Mm-hmm. And if you look at your relationships, that the other person is never wrong, mm. you're allowed to disagree. Mm-hmm. Okay, But if they're never wrong and you, and you respect their view, then you, you get into a situation where you're working together, like you said, as a team. When you, when you disagree so much so that it becomes a format to change their mind or a format to show that they're wrong, then disagreeing has gone too far. It's a simple, I don't agree, but I'm happy to help you. Mm. Most of us can't do that because our ego wants to be right. Mm. The, the ego or the false self finds comfort in being right. It finds value in being right. It finds value in the way others look at us. And one of the three tenets or the five tenets is we know ourselves by what we, how others view us. So if others view us as being wrong, we're viewed less valuable. So we have to be right. No, 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 I said three o'clock. No, you said four o'clock. I said three o'clock. No, 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 I said three. You always make a mistake and you sell, you always do this. You weren't listening. I was listening fine. And now mm. an argument ensues. Mm. The, right, the right discussion is, I understand you said I understand that you feel I said three o'clock. I thought I said four. I'm really sorry for how this happened. How can we make up for it? We
0: have a problem. How can we solve it? Right.
1: There's yeah. no there's no value in arguing who was right and who was wrong. Yeah. One person might hook up to a lie detector and believe they said three. Another person might hook up to a lie detector and believe they heard four. It's entirely possible. Right, of course. Right. So why are we or arguing? Or they just over? have different beliefs about uh, uh
0: Pro-choice, same-sex marriage, you name it, you name it. Right. I'm right, and you're, oh, oh, and you're right too. Uh-oh, we're both right.
1: Yeah. Uh-oh, what are we gonna do? Right. Yeah. We're both allowed to be right. Yeah. It doesn't. We don't need to actually um, convince the other person that we're right. There's no value served in that. And I always tell people, well,
0: well, then there's no value served in that. But we do it all the freaking time, and we feel like um, high-fiving ourselves after we win an argument. So that's the part that's really disturbing. And I, uh, you know, I, I look back over my own life and see those times where, you know, um, you, you revel in, uh, in, in conflict or, or in something that came out in your favor and you were right and the other person had to profusely apologize, whether in the workplace or wh- wherever it is. Uh, and so, well, I think it, it's harder to see the, the problem there. Because you can say, "Yeah, this guy bailed on me. He he didn't write down the time, and I was right." And so you don't see you don't see your contribution, which is that that uh, that worked up um, you know victorious uh, gloating when really you're you're not operating as a team accordingly. If that's if that's how it's going, it down. depends what your goal is. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it right. depends what your goal is.
1: You want right. to you want to win every argument. Or not get into an argument. If you're a lawyer and your goal is to win the argument, okay, you did your job, right? But if your goal is to have a healthy relationship with this person or coworker, then beating them to submission to make them admit that they were wrong, how are they going to feel about you ultimately? You're going right. you're gonna, you're gonna to create a wall or build a wall between both of you. You know, Even when we do beat people into submission and get them to admit they're wrong – we always do kind of have an underlying feeling of guilt that we shouldn't have done that. Another person takes the high road, we say, oh, shoot, I should have taken the high road first. Mm. Oh, I know I should have said, mm. right? I mean, you're not creating peace and harmony in the universe by just making somebody submit. This mm-hmm. is not the, the, the UFC, right? Well, a lot of times the workplace is because
0: the, the the currency is that power and that wielding that power and, and being able to behave, uh, in a manner that's not showing that you're a team player just
1: because you're the boss. But, you know, and I understand that fact. And I think what, what comes down to, and this is a very difficult thing to grasp. And it's something that has to be grasped through actually living it and seeing it. When you do act gracious, when you are gracious, let me back up. When someone told me to have more humility, I didn't even know what that word meant. And I would say things like, oh, I have to pretend that I'm not very good at my job when I know I'm good at my job. Like, what are you talking about? I have to be more humble. You need to be a little more gracious. What does that mean? I have to act like I'm thankful? I worked hard for this, right? But when you you go through some of the transformations that I've been through and you actually are thankful and you actually are humble and you actually don't need to argue and be right— and you come from a place of love and compassion and cooperation and connection. So many more doors open up for you. You're so much more successful when you are those things. And so, again, it's kind of a paradox where, where you know, being vulnerable and weak takes strength and the byproduct of strength again. People feel like they have to fight for every inch. Uh, there was a movie I think exemplified this great. It was called Molly's Game. Have seen that movie? Didn't she was that card, card game, card game yeah. and she just believed in something, and she went to the judge, and she said, I did it. I, I don't remember all the specifics. And the judge said, you know what? I appreciate your honesty. And he gave her, like, the lightest sentence ever. And this happens. When we do stick up for what we believe in, kindness, compassion, graciousness, humility, helping others— it doesn't serve us to beat people up and make them say that they're wrong. Even if the goal is to fight for a job and compete for the next job and make the other person look bad, we don't necessarily have to do that. It doesn't Our success isn't going to rely on being conniving or cutting corners or making the other person look bad. Because you're going to be looked at better. You're going to be rewarded by actually being authentic and actually having these connections and actually exuding love and compassion and kindness while being good at your job at the same time. You're gonna be rewarded for that.
0: Hey, that's a that's a beautiful summary. I like that, Dave. Thank you.
1: You're welcome. Uh, <laughs> that so was a great
0: podcast. Tell me tell me about this Dave Rossi global thing you got going on. How do we learn more about you and connect with what you're doing?
1: Well, we're doing lots of things. We're doing uh, workshops overseas. We have um, a workshop in Italy in September. We have one, a second one in South Africa in March. These end up being like vacation-type retreats. We do teach uh, a couple classes at the Bay Club Courtside in Las Gattis. Uh One of them is called Body by Belief. A lot of the things you can find about what we're doing is on DaveRossiGlobal.com. Also on Facebook at Dave Rossi Global. Um, you know, I put quotes up on Monday usually inspiring. Oh, the quotes things. are great. Worth worth signing up just for that. Go hit the like button. It's cool. You know, yeah. it took me a while to do those things because I have I definitely practice what I preach. But you write these things and you go, "Is this any good? Are people going to like this?" But you know what? At the end of the day, it's what I believe in. It's it's things that have inspired me and helped me change my life. And um, I don't get a lot of feedback, and then I do, and the feedback's amazing. So I don't do it for the feedback, but it's great to hear. It's great to hear that you know my goal now is to help people, um, and as much as I can do that and and feel that humility and graciousness, I'm I'm there. I'm in. Dave Rossi Global R O S S I. Check it out. Thanks for
0: joining us. We got to get you back, man. We got way more to way more to talk about in my notes and my pullouts from the seminar. So um, we'll we'll check back in. Keep doing what you're doing. I love it. Happy to do it. Thanks, Brad. Oh my, I get to talk about my almost heaven sauna. This has been a life-changing acquisition that gives me easy and constant access to one of the most health-boosting therapeutic treatments imaginable, the sauna. Yes, of course, it's been a cultural tradition in Scandinavia and other cold weather countries for hundreds of years. Maybe it's your favorite part of your health club visit or your ski trip vacation resort. But what about if you had a personal sauna in your own home in your garage or your backyard, check out almostheaven.com. They make these super attractive barrel-shaped saunas made of thick, solid wood. None of this fake stuff. It's super easy to assemble. They ship it in a kit to your door. You watch the video. You put it together, get an electrician to wire it, and you're good to go. Turn the timer on, and 30 minutes later, you are in the hot, hot, dry, up to 180 degrees Fahrenheit, and that is the magic zone to get the vaunted health benefits of sauna exposure. You may have heard of these highly lauded heat shock proteins. They deliver profound benefits at the cellular level to boost immune function, cognitive function, cardiovascular function, improve muscular response to exercise and recovery from intense exercise, and of course, longevity. Go to foundmyfitness.com, Rhonda Patrick, and download her report for the extreme scientific details of how beneficial sauna is. I have this classic outdoor pinnacle model. It's six foot by six foot, fits four adults sitting comfortably or two adults reclining and instantly going into napping mode. I know, man, when you get in there, no matter what kind of day you had or what mood you're in, you will instantly feel chill. And this is called a hormetic stressor, a positive natural stressor that creates an adaptive response. So with regular sauna use, you become more resilient to all forms of stress that you experience in daily life. Same with my cold plunge into the cold freezer. It delivers these similar health and hormonal benefits that will make it an absolutely essential part of a relaxing stress balanced day. Please go check them out. It will change your life. And you can get these beautiful six by six or a larger model or even smaller for a surprisingly affordable price due to the direct relationship. You order it on almostheaven.com. They ship it to your door. I can't say enough about it. I'm so excited. This sounds like a commercial. Okay, it is a commercial. But let me tell you, beyond the health benefits, this is a social centerpiece. It's a place to relax and chill and splash the water on the rocks and get a burst of steam. So go pay a quick visit to almostheaven.com. Warning, you're going to be tempted. Hi, it's Brad to talk about ancestral supplements. Question for you, how's it going? With the critically important health objective of consuming some of the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet, namely bone marrow, collagen, and nose-to-tail organ meats like liver, heart, kidney, and more. Yeah, how's it going? Pretty poorly? How did I guess? I have to admit the same. I'm sorry, folks, I've known for a long time since Dr. Kate Shanahan and her wonderful book, Deep Nutrition, emphasized that this is a sorely missing element of the modern diet, but a huge part of the ancestral diet that made humans the healthy creatures that they are today. And now we have a fantastic and convenient solution from Ancestral Supplements because they make New Zealand-sourced bone marrow and nose-to-tail organ meats, liver, heart, kidney, pancreas, spleen, and more delivered in simple, convenient gelatin capsules. Oh my gosh, I love this product, and I love what this company's all about. Go on their website, ancestralsupplements.com. Read one of the most impactful and inspiring mission statements you'll ever see from a company. Listen to how they describe their product. Traditional peoples, Native Americans, and early ancestral healers believed that eating the organs from a healthy animal would strengthen and support the health of the corresponding organ in the individual. The traditional way of treating a person with a weak heart was to feed the person the heart of a healthy animal. Sound hokey to you? I'm sorry, but this is extremely well-supported with scientific evidence confirming that these are the foods that our DNA evolved with and are sorely missing from the modern food supply. That's why Ancestral Supplement says that they're putting back in what the modern world has left out to return people back to strength, health, and happiness. And hey, if you're a clean living. Person that kind of doesn't like the idea of popping a bunch of synthetic vitamins in the name of health, going over to GNC and buying 12 bottles. This is an entirely different story. This is real food packaged conveniently so that you don't have to worry about your liver making skills or how to best cook a kidney. (laughs) Just swallow the pills, man I throw them in my smoothie every morning So I'm taking about 4 or 5 capsules Of the various ancestral supplement products I'm throwing down The beef organs The beef liver The bone marrow There's so many other ones On their absolutely fabulous and educational website Thanks for trying it Ancestralsupplements.com You will love it